0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with behavioral therapist Erica Guest about how an abusive narcissist shapes our behavior and conditions people for long-term abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Erica Guest. How are you?
1: I'm well, Brandon. How are you doing?
0: I am doing well. And for those that don't know you, you've been on our Survivor Story episode, September 13th, 2021. You've also been a guest on our Q&A episodes where we discuss transactional analysis theory, and now you are back. We are going to discuss today how a narcissist uses behavior conditioning. And for those who are listening, behavior conditioning, you probably in high school at a certain point, you heard about Pavlov's dog and things like that. Well, that's what we're kind of we're going on this path here today. So big thank you to Erica for you for, for being here with me today. And now uh, let's get into... Uh, our topic today and we'll start off with like your own struggle and how this could happen to you hmm. a behavioral consultant and behavioral conditioning and also before we begin everyone we're going to be use example we're going to be using examples and clips from the show uh, it's in no way to say that other people's clips are not as valuable as, uh, as, uh, everyone else's. It's just that when we were just digging, these were like the first ones we, we found that, that worked for what we were doing. And that's all I have to say about that. Just like Forrest Gump once said, and now I'm handing it off right to you. Go for it.
1: <laughs> you know what? I was thinking that maybe at the end of this, we should be issuing certificates because this is like. Behavioral Psychology 101. (laughs) We're going to dig into it. There'll be a quiz at the
0: end. All right, and I'll charge admission. Okay, perfect. (laughs) So tell us about Um, your struggle. Well, I think the
1: struggle was um, the day that I realized that the, the methods that I use in my practice as a behavior interventionist were the very methods that were being used in my own home and in my own relationship. And uh, I'll never forget it. I was in a, a grade five classroom. I was there uh, providing behavior support to a little guy that we called Tiger. And uh, I, I was all set up with my equipment. I had my reinforcement system. We had a, a, a safety plan. We had um, some corrective measures that we would use if, if he um, behaved in uh, ways that we were looking to to correct so there was some, in other words, there were some consequences for, for ways that he was behaving. And, uh, I'm wildly committed to methods of positive behavior support. So these are entirely non-aversive methods of, of behavior shaping. Um, and as, as I was sitting there with my bag of tricks, it just occurred to me that I was living with exactly the same techniques in my own home and, I, I really owe it to the kids that I support on a daily basis for holding up the mirror and allowing me to see um, the stuff that was fundamentally changing who I am. It was over time when our behavior has changed over time, it actually changes. It changed my sense of identity. And so, I, you know, that day with Tiger, sitting there offering him Fruit Loops for <laughs> desired behavior, I realized that, that I was I was under the same system. So one of the questions I'm curious about is how can we recognize when, when we're being, when our behavior is being shaped or influenced by another person, how can we identify that sooner? And I was so struck by the story of Ethel. Um, Her narcissist is actually a dog trainer. So you can be sure that he's using the same methods that I am. And he has the audacity to say to her, um, Well, let's, let's listen to the clip and, and let's, let her tell that part of the story herself.
2: Uh, He would tell me that he also told me that he could train people and he could train me. And I was like, no, you're not going to train me. Right.
0: And sadly, he already had.
1: Yeah, he truly had eh? you know, we hear prior, prior to this moment, all of the ways that he was reinforcing her and punishing her and, um. Her behavior was already changed i think it's pretty pretty audacious for him to just make that kind of claim and he's not wrong he he can train people he has trained people and uh the other interesting thing that he says is that he's not encumbered by the the feelings that other people have he's not burdened or limited by things like empathy or compassion he doesn't have feelings like other people spoken like a true narcissist and uh, unlike him, uh, a good chunk of my university training is in the world of ethics. So on one hand, we have these methods of, of behavior conditioning and, and shaping. Um, and I'm, people entrust their children to me and say, listen, we've got a problem and I need your help to fix this. And so on the other hand, I have the code of ethics that says, you know, how do I do this in an ethical way? And I am absolutely constrained by those, that code of ethics, unlike a narcissist. So uh, I'm going to use the term conditioning and shaping kind of interchangeably. And I should probably define those. Um, they certainly work together interchangeably. There's nothing wrong with that. So behavior shaping is the incremental development of a behavior over time. So training wheels are a really good example of a behavior shaping method. Or if you've got a kid who really likes to pet the dog, Um, they're, you know, they're curious about the dog and they've always got their fingers up in its fur. And then you, so they're naturally curious. And then you shape that behavior further and you say, pet the puppy nicely, just like this, no pulling, good job. And so you shape the behavior into more of what's expected. Another really great example of behavior shaping has to do with how we teach babies language. So and this this isn't actually a tangent, this is related to how a narcissist tra- tra- um, influences our behavior. Babies um, are known to babble in, in the sounds of their culture. So the babbling of a baby from Japan will be different than the babbling sounds of a baby from North America. And so let's say that my baby is sitting in her high chair at eight o'clock in the morning. She's just woken up. I know that she's hungry. I've just warmed up her bottle. It's on the cupboard. Um, she's reaching for it. She's starting to fuss. She's starting to babble. And somewhere within that, I hear the B sound. And I say, Oh, yes, that's your bottle. That's your bottle. And I want to give it to her as quickly as possible because I want to reinforce the fact that she just used the right consonant for the thing that she wants. So now we're making language useful between the two of us. And then over time, I'm going to to request more. I'm going to use behavior shaping. I'm going to say, bottle. And someday I might hear her say, baba, which is now two syllables and the right consonant. We might call it a baba for a couple of weeks and then and then we're going to progressively work on that word until she's actually saying bottle and that's how we use behavior shaping to to land at that place where the behavior is exactly what we want it to be and i think that me- that method of behavior shaping is so useful to a narcissist particularly around that frog in the kettle analogy that if 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 the narcissist came into the relationship on the first date um, demanding the expected behavior, I, we'd all walk away, I, I assume. Like that, that would be too forceful and too much um, on the first date. It was like, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm never going to see you again. But the frog in the kettle method really describes that gradual exposure, that gradual behavior shaping, the slow and systematic influence of behavior over time. Um, If you think about behavior shaping like wet clay, so in the hands of a narcissist, especially if we're attracted and looking for love, we're just like clay in their hands and and our behavior will be shaped accordingly. So the the questions that I hope to to discuss today, Brandon, are how can we recognize when someone is shaping our behavior so that we can, you know, hopefully uh, protect ourselves against that? Which of our behaviors are likely to be targeted? Um, that, again, describes how we can protect those particular behaviors of our own and, and which methods are likely to be used to influence our behavior. I hope we can, we can kind of cover those questions today.
0: So I guess the, the, in the uh, first question, how do we know that we've been the target of behavior shaping? um and you have written down here uh, something called uh, the doctors of the dark side which is a documentary mm-hmm. um and through this year you know if you can identify the methods that are likely to be used can we be better prepared mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: that's that's actually the focus of that documentary it's um it's the story of how the US government Uh, investigated the methods of torture that are used by enemy forces. And then what they did with that information is they provided that to military trainees to say, listen, you now work for us. You're going to be in enemy territory. You might be taken hostage or captive. You're going to be subjected to these torture methods, and we're going to give you the tools to survive. And I mean, ideally what the government wants is to protect state secrets. But, um, what You know, when I think about the work of, of Mark Vicente, who you, you interviewed with Vienna, um, you know, the whole purpose of his work as a filmmaker now is to equip people with an understanding of how coercive control works and how, um, I, for me, it's, it's not a stretch to say some narcissists use torture methods. Um, one of the first methods of, of any torture um, around the world is sleep deprivation. So when I think about, you know, the narcissists who keep us up at night, um, when it, one of the first things that does is it, it affects our cognitive functioning. So um, my hope today is is to identify some of those methods that are used so that we can withstand the effect of that.
0: So when it comes to you know, knowing that we've been the target of of behavior shaping, the number one sign of shaping behavior is when someone starts thinking I'm walking on eggshells, which you hear pretty much in every single one of our episodes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and then we have some other episodes that we, we've written down here uh, when it comes to um, Hira uh, who was a college student. She was goaded uh, to go to the pub when she wanted to be home studying. Um, and, and that is... Um, ba- like, you know, someone's putting up their boundaries. And uh-huh. in, in this case, you know, it's not seen as boundary pushing in this episode, uh, in, in this person's story. It's not something that you look at as this is pushing a boundary. But it's used in this fun kind of idea of this is kind of what we do on a normal basis. It's not something that's scary. It's, um, you know, having a drink might be considered a treat, you know, for a dog in a sense, you know, here's a reward of some sort. At least we're going to be doing something kind of fun. Um, so you don't notice things when they're they're being done in that way uh, and then in Saturday's episode uh she mentioned she just mentions he just wore me down is a, a big sign of of you know behavior shaping in the episode with Quinn uh she describes i just went numb and she also describes landmines
1: yeah she did some walk on eggshells and Quinn described walking on landmines there was another conversation you had where you talked about the the house was on fire so all of those those speak to the sort of the insidious ways that somehow our behavior has been shaped to where we've learned not you know to avoid those landmines and to walk delicately so as not to to set off the moods of the narcissist
0: and eventually a lot of people get to a point of their relationship their toxic relationship or their abusive relationship where they say to themselves, I do not recognize myself anymore. Mm -hmm. And at that point, when that comes out of your mouth or you're thinking it, you've been shaped. Mm -hmm. You've been conditioned. You're no longer the same person anymore. And the desired effect by your abuser, by the toxic narcissist in your life, by the coercive controller in your life their work is done
1: yeah in fact and you could say they're in some ways their work is done and in other ways you could say that that's when their work starts um once once our be- once we've been groomed um then then the fun begins i mean then they've set up the conditions where they can do whatever they want mm-hmm. because our behaviors are now thoroughly under their control um yeah exactly
0: so, I guess at this point um are we going to discuss ivan Pavlov?
1: Sure, let's do it. This is psychology one o one
0: so classic conditioning part one ivan pavlov nineteen nineteen o two take us take take us on this uh day in history professor <laughs> um
1: So, first of all, classical doesn't have anything to do with music. It has to do with the the, the first discovery. Classical, it's the classic. It's the first one. It's like Coke classic. Um, We should know about Pavlov that he wasn't up to anything nefarious when he was doing these experiments. And he did nothing nefarious with his discovery after it happened. He he wasn't up to anything bad. Um, He was actually studying digestion. And, uh, I I think he probably had the better end of the deal because they were using dogs and, um, he happened to be at the feeding end of things and not the picking up dog shit end of things. So he was lucky to be at, at that end of the lab. Um, one of the, the laboratory controls in this experiment for studying digestion in dogs was to ensure that the dogs were hungry. And I want you to put a pin in that because that has relevance to the narcissistic relationship. Um, Keep, keep your subjects hungry. Keep them wanting more. Um, so let's imagine at, that the onset of these experiments was triggered by a bell. The bell was actually, a, this isn't actually how it happened, but let's say that the bell um, signaled uh, that the food was to be delivered to the dogs. So the bell rings, the food is delivered, the dogs begin to drool. Salivation is one of the first Autonomic behaviors related to digestion. Um, Pavlov takes his notes. The end. But then one day in the lab, the bell is rung and the guy delivering the food is late. And Pavlov notices that in the absence of food, they can't see it. They can't smell it. It's not in the room. In the total absence of the food, the dogs drool anyways he's like, well, why is that? So it turns out that that is something called associative learning, that a neutral stimulus, which is the, the bell, the bell means nothing is paired together with a meaningful stimulus, which is food and an association is made. And so the bell begins to represent the fact that food is coming. So, um, I, there was there was associative learning that occurs. This is this really happens in the grooming stages of our relationship with a narcissist, um, where where we're learning and our behaviors are bring being brought under the control of the narcissist. Where we the there's a neutral stimulus, like uh, the example I'm going to use is emoji, together with with a meaningful stimulus, which is the moods of my narcissistic partner. Um, Her name is Andy. My narcissistic partner is Andy. And so I'll I'll be referring to her uh, throughout the story. But uh, so just a little bit of background about my relationship to Andy before I describe how her grooming worked. Um, We had a six or seven year relationship that was basically built on future faking. Um, I was promised that her relationship to someone else was over, that if I moved closer to her, we would be together. Uh, She pledged her undying love and made all kinds of promises and then never delivered on those promises. It turns out that Andy was basically a grifter and uh, moved from relationship to relationship and place to place, living off the good graces of people, including their money. And I mean, that makes for a fantastic movie when we watch grifter movies and we say, how did they accomplish that? How did they do it? And the answer, how did they do it? In my opinion, has everything to do with behavior conditioning. So one of the first in this long distance relationship, um, and any couple who's built a relationship through texting very likely has their own language be- between the two of them. Um, <laughs> I think there's some couples who, who will use like a the the eggplant represents a penis and a peach represents the vagina. And um, in our relationship, um, there's an emoji that's sort of like this, it's like a a red mask, like a monster, the red monster. (laughs) So in a lesbian relationship, the red monster represents menstruation, which matters when you're two lesbians who are hoping to have sex on the weekend. And it's like, Hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you. And then you get the red mask and it's like, well, damn. So, Those emoji are just neutral symbols. They're nothing. They're inert. They're one-dimensional until we assign meaning to them. And what I came to understand is that uh, we've had almost like a three-star rating system. If if I got three kissy faces, like the little yellow emoji with a heart, three was the maximum amount of love. Um, Three laughing faces was like, maximum laughter that I told a really good joke if I got three laughing faces, but I also came to learn that if I got a high five, um, she was annoyed by something. Um, the high five symbol actually represent it was actually passive aggression. And she was, she was pissy about something. So if I got the high five right now, this is a sign of behavioral conditioning. If I got the high five, I would say, um, Is everything okay? Because it would signal me that her mood had shifted. And, um, oh, did I say high five? Thumbs up was passive aggression. High five meant she was really mad. (laughs) Um, Because if she was really in agreement with me, she would write the words out. She would say, oh, that's a great idea. But if she was really upset about something or actually in disagreement, then I would get the high five. Anyway, all that to say that I had been conditioned by... Uh, the emoji that she would use, they took on significance for our relationship. Um, and the faster I intervened in her shift in mood, the, the more I hoped to avoid a full-blown um, episode uh, just by running interference on her emotion. Um, that's classical codependency. You know, her her moods are my fault. So I was thoroughly trained in how to do that.
0: And up next, after we just explained Ivan Pavlov, we're going to go to explaining classical conditioning uh, with someone named John Watson. So can you explain John Watson?
1: So Watson came along about 20 years later, and my disdain for him is no secret Um, And if you want to join me in disliking him, then you just have to look him up on YouTube because it's just appalling what he did. Um, Like I said, Pavlov did nothing bad with his discovery. He just, he wrote about it and other people got interested in it um, because it has the potential to do some really scary things. And, you know, Pavlov used dogs and Skinner later used pigeons. And Watson decided that he was going to use a real human baby baby's name was Albert and he was an orphan and Watson and his mistress conducted these experiments on this human kid and unlike Pavlov who discovered you know drooling and how you could cause drooling by ringing a bell Watson's question was can I teach fear and for those of us who have survived a narcissistic relationship we know that that answer is yes Fear can be taught. And that's exactly what Watson did. So he paired a neutral stimulus, which in this case happens to be a bunny, just harmless bunny. Bunnies don't growl. Bunnies don't bite. Um, You know, they're not overly scary. He put the bunny in the presence of the baby and the baby was mildly curious, like there was no adverse reaction to that stimulus. And then Watson banged the crap out of pots and pans right on top of the baby's head and over and over and over again he paired that aversive stimuli this banging metal pots and a very neutral thing which which was just a bunny and of course the baby had a startle response the baby started to cry and scream eventually the baby tries to to crawl away it's just awful to watch this on video now the test for whether or not that learning has actually occurred is to remove the pots and pans. And then if you put the bunny in the presence of the baby and he screams like you know he's holding a, a poisonous snake, um, you know you've, you've, you've done the experiment. You've taught this little kid how to fear, even though the aversive stimuli is completely gone. Um, I was so struck uh, by the story of Kira who was the the young college student with a a narcissistic husband. And uh, I'm wondering if we might listen to the clip and, and be listening for the sign that her behavior has been conditioned. One of the things to notice in a conditioned behavior is that we don't respond to a stimulus in the way that other people do. There's something unusual about how we respond. So let's listen to that clip
3: one time we were out at a party and it was my friend's birthday party. And um, we were at a bar and, you know, the beginning of the night, he was like, you look beautiful. I love you so much. Like all of these things. And at one point we're standing on a table, you know, with everyone. And he whispers in my ear, quit being a fucking whore. And I, my face just went blank and I smiled Because everyone was looking at us, you know, and I just had to act like he just said something so sweet in my ear. So it was at that moment, you know, where I almost made it okay for him to continue to devalue me and get away with saying little things like that. Because, you know, after he whispered that in my ear, I just pretended like nothing happened. You know, even though inside I was holding back tears and just, why would he say that? Why would you say that to some you love, you know? And what was I doing? Was I talking to someone wrong? Was I, you know, I started going over everything in my
1: head. What am I doing? Is it me? So the boyfriend has, has said to her, he, he, there, she's dancing on the table. He, he kisses into her ear. Stop being such a whore. And we hear Hiara say that, that she, she smiled. She said, I, I made it okay for him to devalue me. And what I think was happening is, is she knew that the consequences for reacting the way you and I would react if somebody said that to us, the consequences would be huge. She couldn't afford to act out. She had to. So she just put on her public face. She just smiled, knowing that he was seething with anger and that those consequences would likely happen after they got home. She had learned not to embarrass him. And, and I, you know, it's so powerful when she says, I pretended like he just whispered the sweetest thing in my ear so that anybody who was watching, um, saw that response. I, I had opportunity this year to see my own reflexive response. Um, when I teach college, Uh, this last through COVID I've taught college online and my lectures have been recorded. So this year when I was preparing my notes, I went back to those videos. And what's interesting is that I recorded those, those lectures when I was in my relationship to my narcissistic partner. And, and this year I taught um, having left that relationship and on video, just like baby Albert on video, Um, I'm in the middle of lecturing and my phone must have vibrated on my desk beside me and I can see the flash across my face. My head actually twitches and I look into my camera and to my students and I say, did one of you just text me? And there's panic in my voice. And then I quickly caught myself, which like, it's stupid to ask that. We're in a, a Zoom call and if One of them texts me, it's going to be in the chat bar. It's not going to be on my phone, which means that I know that that vibrating phone beside me is Andy. And there is very likely chaos or consequence on the other side of that call. And what I saw in the flash across my face was that Pavlovian response that I had been conditioned to react to so quickly and so severely.
0: And and another example from our show is with... Ethel. And we're going to listen to uh, this clip right now.
2: And so then he starts begging. He's begging. He's like, it's my PTSD. You know, no one can touch my hair and, uh, this and that. And he's going on and on He gives me this big, long, you know, talk about how no one can touch his hair. And it comes from being in prison. Uh, there was a lot of stuff about being in prison, um, and also PTSD from the war. So I, uh, I let it go and I let, I accepted his answer and he was like, you have to be careful with ever touching my face and pulling my hair. And I thought, well, okay, it's part of his PTSD he was in prison. Um, He got stabbed when he was in prison. And so there was also this kind of thing where he would always tell me he was 100% trustworthy. He wasn't like the other men. But I better never open his drawers and look in his drawers, his clothes. I better never look in his paperwork. I better never look in his wallet. And if he ever finds out I look in anything of his, we are over. And so I was just kind of petrified about that. You know, I was kind of petrified to touch any of his stuff. But that was his way of, you know, keeping me away from the things that I was going to find out later.
0: (laughs) So how far into your relationship now are you when this first uh, intimate partner violence happens?
2: You know, I'm thinking it's like three or four months. Okay, so so
0: three or four months has gone by. This incident occurs right here. You are, you know, have already been trained or groomed to... Uh, forgive his uh, uh, anger issues, his outbursts, and now his violent physical behavior blaming it on his PTSD, his childhood, his Iraq war, his time in jail. He's not taking responsibility for anything. And he's now also setting fear boundaries with you. You're not allowed to do Mm -hmm. this. You're not allowed to do that. You can't touch this. He's creating a separation for you to not find out about anything that he doesn't want you to find out about. And you are already afraid of those outbursts that have occurred, and you don't want to see those outbursts again. And, you know, from the beginning of when you met him, when he leaves his ex's home in four days, and that initial hook gets into you of like, this guy really must like me, to the point where you are like, this guy's really into, into me. He's said, All of the right things. He knows everything now about me. And, you know, uh, all of these things that I'm looking for that are the opposite of my ex. I've excused all of these other giant red flags. You know, a lot of this. Yes, I'm scared. But at the same time, I'm used to this kind of up and down chaos. I'm, I'm still here. The sex is great. And, you know... And also within this time, boundaries are trying to be pushed, Um, mental boundaries, sexual boundaries with your body, and now uh, you have physical boundaries as well. So you're in a really bad spot here at the three or four month mark with everything that he's been able to get away with and the trap in which was set to let that continue.
1: So what I, what I notice about um, what you say to her is, is she, you're beginning, the, the story is now transitioning to that time when, um, you know, the pleasantries of, of um, grooming and the idealization phase and love bombing, that's about to shift now. And w- your observation to Ethel is that she's been, she's been thoroughly groomed and she's now set up for um, the worst of it. And 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 what you say to her is that fear has been taught. It's just like what Watson taught to baby Albert, that, that fear has effectively been taught to her. She's learned which, which signals um, are going to mean consequences for her. She's been conditioned, and she's now ready for the worst of it. It's, it's just such an incredible mirror that you hold up for her.
0: So up next, what we're going to kind of discuss right now is how a narcissist can benefit from classical conditioning mm-hmm. and we have three benefits here there's behind closed doors we have only the crazy is visible and generalized learning so take us through benefit number 1 behind closed doors
1: all right this this is this was such a wake up call for me i i think the first benefit of classical conditioning to to the narcissist so the, the benefit of classical conditioning is that the teaching goes on behind closed doors. We don't actually get to see the banging pots and pans. We don't get to see the coffee mug that gets smashed against the wall beside your head. We don't get to see somebody who, you know, puts a boot to your phone and smashes your screen. Uh, we don't get to see, um, you know, how many family photos, family pictures have been taken where the narcissist is actually pinching you in the in the back of the neck? Like, we don't get to see that in classical conditioning. All the training, all the teaching goes on behind closed doors. And all that's visible to the public is just the reflexive behavior, um, which to a lot of people will be completely invisible. I mean, here is dancing on a, a table at a party, having a good time. Boyfriend whispers something awful in her ear and, you know, she, she shows no response. So all of that conditioning and training has gone on behind closed doors. Um, so the second benefit to the narcissist of classical conditioning is that all that's left over is the fact that we look crazy, that, that, you know, the victims of these, these methods just look insane. Um, eventually you get to remove the abusive gestures that you might have used to, to teach your victim how you want them to behave. You don't you know the pots and pans disappear. We've got a baby who's terrified of bunnies. So let's say we take baby Albert, he's going to daycare and we take little Albert to the petting zoo and you know he's having a good day and he's fine with all the animals. And then all of a sudden he's in front of the the rabbit pen and he loses his mind. You know, little baby Albert he's just like freaking out and we're like, buddy it's just a bunny. That's all it is. It's all good. And he's, he's screaming bloody murder. He's terrified. And it's, you know, before long, he's at the pediatrician and getting medication and the diagnosis because he seems like a crazy kid. When in fact, he's just been, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. He's been taught to fear bunnies. And so when you think about us as survivors who, you know, all of a sudden we You know we have a big reaction to something or we're we're crying uncontrollably or we're we're triggered by something and it's like wow you know she really is nuts like no wonder he left her she's she's crazy well you you don't know what goes on behind closed doors and how we've been affected by those threats and by that violence and by those those aversives um you know she's you 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 just you i think there was a, a story one time when someone said they soak us in gas and then they marvel at the fact that we're flammable. Like that—that's that's the effect of that conditioning behind closed doors. Um, the third and and final benefit of of conditioning to the narcissist is what we call generalized learning. And this is something that that Watson experimented with. He congratulated himself on having taught an infant how to be scared. You know, father of the year, and little side note, um, Watson's children died by suicide. No surprise. So, I mean, he's an asshole. So he decided, um, having effectively taught this kid to be scared of rabbits to experiment, you know, what would you do with a stuffed bunny? Um, there's, there's a YouTube video where Watson is wearing a a bunny mask and, um, you know, what effect of it, does that have on the baby? And and eventually, he just use a, uses a little pelt of fur, and the kid just screams. So we, in behavioral psychology, we call that generalized learning, where your initial stimuli or trigger is the bunny itself. And then we generalize that learning to things that resemble that particular thing. So you think about the benefit to the narcissist in that, that, you know, if If you've terrified me at home by punching me or by punching the wall, and then we're out at a restaurant with a bunch of people and I see you clench your fist and that scares me, I start to tremble. And I think, you know, I'm just dreading going home with you. That's generalized learning or, and it might even be far more subtle than that. It might be, you know, your face changed or your tone of voice changed. And that's generalized learning to where even just the milder symbols of the consequences are are evident in um, you know how, how the victim responds or how the survivor responds. So those I think are, are three of the, the real benefits to classical conditioning. And I don't know if they do it with that much intention, but they're clearly doing it.
0: And what is, I guess, the survival tip when it comes to these benefits to the narcissist?
1: I think one of the, the survival tips is, is to notice which boundaries you've been asked to compromise and to guard them. I mean, that's really the first step in in grooming and behavior shaping is it, no matter how harmless it is, like, you know, Kira was going to college and she needed to study and her boyfriend bugged her to come out to the pub and she's like, oh, okay, fine, I'll come. Um, just notice which boundaries are, you're being asked to um, overlook. Um, there was a story you told uh, a couple of weeks ago where a woman was adamantly opposed to having a threesome. And then by the end, uh, you know, she was she was a willing participant um, or or a, a survivor who who was adamant that she's not going to live with someone without, you know, apart from marriage. And then all of a sudden he moves in and there's there's no judgment to those those observations. Um, It's just a sign that we've got boundaries, many of which are rooted in our, in our value system, and they just slowly get encroached. So a survival tip is really to monitor those things. Um, And, and the second tip I think is to be aware of subtle disapprovals and corrections. Um, Notice, notice which of your behaviors are becoming problematic to the narcissist,
0: Well, that's our next question. Big question number two, which of our behaviors are likely problematic for the narcissist? And the first story you want to tell is about the Montreal massacre. And a lot of people who are listening to the show, you're not from Canada, so you don't know what the Montreal massacre is. And it had to do with uh, a mass killing at uh, the École Polytechnique in, in Montreal. And this happened in 1989. It's uh, something that is still uh, discussed here in Canada to this day. Uh, violence against women. Uh, so, you know, take us through here um, you know, the Montreal massacre, massacre, when it comes to isolation, silence, chaos, terror.
1: This was really the moment where I discovered or just, it it felt clear to me that, that these, um, these were the behaviors that were under attack by, by my narcissist. Um, I, I forget what year it was, but I was invited to speak to the National Day of Action of Violence Against Women, which coincides with the anniversary of the shooting at, at Ecole Polytechnique. And so in, in preparing preparing that address, um, I dug a little deeper into the story of that horrific day. I'm going to use the shooter's name, and I've made a commitment to myself that, whoop, I'm having an emotional response. I have a commitment um, not to say his name without saying all of their names. So I'm just telling you, Brandon, that I will say their names when I get home tonight uh, because I'm going to name him. His name is Mark Clipine. He was the shooter. And I was so struck by the things that he did after he entered that school. His first action was to separate the men from the women. And that That was the first action of of isolation uh, because his target, his intended victims were those women. His second action was to ask the question of of the women that were standing in front of him. Why do you think I'm here? But, you know, narcissists are rarely open to conversation and he wasn't interested in their answer. He answered his own question. Um, He said, I'm here because of feminism. And he blamed these women, these engineering students for affecting his opportunities. Uh, This was a gender-based attack, murder. And then the the third and final action of of the shooter was complete terror, Uh, the terror at the the other end of a gun. And it occurred to me as I was addressing uh, the audience that day that I I was being subjected to very similar things, obviously not at the other end of the gun, but I was being isolated. I was being silenced, and I the, the longer I was in the relationship, the more I was living with mental chaos. Um, I was not thinking clearly. So uh, I think we need to be aware of how our social behaviors might come under attack. So that's anything that, that we're doing that's meant to maintain our connection to other people.
0: And let's listen to a clip with Ethel to explain this a little. Oh, yeah.
2: He began isolating me then at the time uh, because he wanted me by his side all the time. So any time that I wasn't working, I was with him. Uh, I would go with him to his dog training events. I was just by his side all the time. And for me, that was great because he wanted my attention, right? But he was basically kind of pulling me away from, well... I guess if I go back to this, like I was in a different state and I didn't have a lot of friends at the time. So it would probably was very easy for me to step right into that because I just had my patients and I didn't really know a lot of people except for the people he was introducing me into Mm -hmm. introducing me to. So I just stepped right into this world of his and went with it. And then he tried to isolate me from my children. He would tell me, you know, my kids weren't good kids. Um, you know, I needed to just face that they were bad people. And it was him and I against the world. and I needed to just go ahead and let them go.
1: I, and she just she describes it so perfectly. Uh, you know the the techniques that are used on her to create isolation, including, you know, geography. how many stories? How many people have you interviewed where, there's some sort of geographic movement, right? Uh, You know, all of a sudden I moved away from my family or there might be, um, uh, even, even vacations create an opportunity where you're not in your normal setting. And, and that sort of puts us off kilter. So that, that was Ethel's experience. And then of course the narcissist started throwing shade on her kids and creating distance between her and her children and planting little seeds of, of doubt. So, um, our social behaviors will include anything to do with how we communicate, um, the shared memories that we have with people. Narcissists don't like that, that if we've got shared memories, if we're, if we're making plans together, if we have traditions together with people, those, how, many sto- how many people have you interviewed where some narcissist has made a mess of Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? That, that affects, those are social behaviors, and 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 I mean, we're in the middle of COVID. So again, again, how many people have you interviewed who have left their narcissistic partner in the middle of a pandemic because the isolation is almost too much to bear? At least that was certainly the case with me. I, I left a year ago, um, December nineteenth.
0: And uh, after the social behaviors, we have communication behaviors.
1: So I think our communication behaviors, and maybe this is a bit of a survival tip, um, you know what? What kind of communicator are you? Are you someone who speaks really honestly and candidly? Um, are you a clear communicator? Are you blunt and straightforward? Um, those are things that a narcissist does not like, and 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 we might find that our um, what we communicate, how we communicate, is edited over time. Um, I'll give an example from my own experience of how this happened. Um, You know, when you're hanging out with friends and you're a new couple, somebody's bound to ask you, how did you two meet? And I noticed um, when I was telling that story to my friends or my family, that Andy didn't have any issue with how I told that story. And I was telling the story factually. Um, When we, when Andy and I met, we were both in other relationships. I was married. She was with her wife of 12 years. And, um, that, you know, I tell the story, haha. that I met Andy on Facebook. Somebody recommended her to me. She was really aggressive on Facebook. And everybody at the table laughs because we all know that Andy is aggressive on Facebook. And she's self-righteous. And she tells everybody what to do. She's bossy. And then, of course, I tell the story that, we went to private mess. I, I went to private messenger and I found the sweetheart there that I grew to love. And then everybody laughs at that part of the story too, because we all know that side of Andy as well. And I was free to tell that story um, as often as I wanted to, to, to my friends. But there was a day when we were hanging out with friends who are not only um, from Andy's side of the world but who had also been friends with her and Sarah, with, with her, ex, her ex-girlfriend. And so, you know, I told this story a dozen times, and I, it never occurred to me that I couldn't tell it here. So I told exactly the same story. And all, and all of a sudden, I noticed that Andy wasn't responding in the same way. And she, she said in front of our friends, um, you know, you really freaked me out that day. Like, I thought, who is this freak? Like, who does this? Who reaches out on Facebook like this and then goes to private messenger? And, you know, I, I, you, really, you know, you're just another cisgendered woman, hetero, unhappy marriage, chasing after somebody like me. And I mean, it just shut the whole conversation down. And I was so embarrassed by that consequence, by that correction, that it's a story I simply stopped telling. Now, why the difference? Why was it okay to tell that story the way I did for as long as I did, and now suddenly it was wrong? And the answer was that um, if that story got back to Sarah, she would know how much Andy had lied to her because we were being triangulated. Um, She was lying to both of us about the status of that relationship. And so over time, uh, my story became edited in, in ways that suited Andy's purposes.
0: And up next, we have cognitive behaviors.
1: Well, and this is the hallmark of narcissistic abuse is, uh, the attack of our ability to think independently and clearly. Um, so this is actually, again, I'm going to credit my students with this, the the children that I support. I was sitting in my office one day, reviewing a student's file and looking over, uh, a psych assessment a psychological assessment and what i noticed in the subtests for the psych assessment is it listed things like working memory processing speed um perception nonverbal communication and and then within that you know we would think of things like decision making and problem solving and self regulation those are all cognitive behaviors and altogether we call those executive functions in in psychology. And as I was looking at this kid's psych report, I mean, you know, we might end up with a diagnosis, we might end up with a learning disability. But as as I looked at this report, I was I was suddenly struck that my executive functions had been under attack, that one by one my memory was affected, my perceptions were affected, my ability to problem solve my ability to self-regulate, like to regulate my own emotion, all of that was being affected by this relationship. It was it was debilitating my ability to to think to think independently. And when it came to finally making my escape plan, um, with the help of a counselor, I made my escape plan uh, at a time when I was thinking clearly, or in like brief periods of time where I, where I had clarity. Knowing that come that moment that I was poised to escape, that I would be back in that place of mental confusion. And I mean, it's no rocket science to to say that gaslighting serves the purpose of, of affecting our cognitive functions. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you, you don't even know how to spell your own name. So um, I, I, th- I think in terms of survival tips, those are the three behaviors of, of ours we need to guard really carefully
0: and now we're going on to a number three question three recognizing the methods how do we recognize the methods of coercive control
1: I think it would be great to start this section with um, Quinn uh, amazingly uh, here we are talking about Pavlov and Skinner and Quinn when she was a PhD student, uh, had time in the laboratory. And she, she again, she uses that example of, of behavior modification from the laboratory. And this, um, she talks about the, the, the methods that were used on the mice that were in the lab. So let's listen to her, her clip here.
4: He, he became so, so cruel, but in a random way, that um, and I have to tell the story about the mice because I had in college taken a psychology class and there was this experiment where there were these mice and the mice would be shocked for different reasons in this experiment. I know what you really mean. Um, and they would not care. They would get shocked. Um, every time they did X or Y, they would get shocked. And they would, you know, try to avoid those areas and then they would go about their business. Then they would do the second experiment where they would shock the mice randomly in different places for no reason. And the mice became depressed. And that was me. I was the mouse that was just getting shocked and rewarded for no reason. And I couldn't, I I felt helpless and really, really depressed.
1: What what Quinn has described is that um, there was a pattern of shocking. It's it's a form of punishment. The the consequence was delivered to the mice, as she says, on on a in a random pattern. The random pattern of punishment had an effect on the mice, and scientifically, what they noticed is that the mice became depressed. And so, for at at this point, the story Quinn's story kind of pivots, and she goes on to describe um, the the depression that she felt, the impact of this intermittent punishment that she experienced at the hands of, of her narcissist. We hear a lot right now in, in literature around narcissistic abuse about something called intermittent reinforcement. And it's it's such an important observation. But I, I want to add to that today, Brandon, because Intermittent reinforcement, if you think about a narcissist has a toolkit, intermittent reinforcement is only one tool. There's a whole range of tools that narcissists use to condition or shape our behavior. There's many systems of of rewards and punishment um, that are used by by people with personality disorders.
0: So we're now going to go into uh, the guide to setting up a reinforcement system.
1: It's sure right. Um, let, let's offer this up for free if there's a narcissist who doesn't know how to do this.
0: Um, so uh, I guess the, the first step within this reinforcement system is knowing what your victim wants. What is their motivation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I do this in my work. Um, you know, when I get a, a new referral and I'm getting to know a kid, I I have a formalized uh, reinforcement inventory to know what that kid likes. I want to know what, what sports team they like. I want to know their favorite color. I want to know their favorite food, what they do for fun. Like you do a reinforcement inventory to find out what the motivations are. And, um, and, and then you can leverage that for the behaviors that you want to get. So I actually did an experiment. I was like, well, how, how on earth does a narcissist figure out what my motivation is? And, and so what I did is, um, I have a colleague, I found a colleague who I I don't know very well outside of work. Uh, She's the same age as me, and she's single. And so I thought, if I look at her first 25 posts on Facebook, would I be able to gather what her priorities are, or what her motivations are, or even what her value system is? And it it was just so clear to me uh, what, you know, I had a really good idea of what might be important to her. And then with only very brief and, and superficial interactions with her, I was able to piece that information together. That, you know, those are the things she posted on Facebook. These are my brief interactions with her in person. That makes a lot of sense. And if I was a malicious narcissist, I could leverage that against her. Um, I, the story of Ethel um, in such a heartfelt way she describes the, the first date and you're, Brandon, you, you always ask everybody, how did you know that you were hooked? When did you know that you were hooked? What hooked you? And, and Ethel tells this heartfelt story about how she was hooked on the first date. And I, I would love to listen to that um, in her own words. Um, I think the first
2: hook came like at the end of that um, dinner he asked, he, he says to me, I don't want this evening to end. And he asked me to take a walk around the city with him. So at the time, my son, my youngest son is on drugs. I'm a single parent. I'm going through a lot emotionally with my child. And we walk around the city. He's very much a gentleman. He's very kind. Um, and you know, I'm talking with him and at the, the very end of the walk, when I get to my car, um, I'm kind of crying about my, my son and he gives me this hug. Um, and he just holds me. And, um, and that was, that was the hook. I, you know, he had been talking to me for two weeks. He had been very interested in me, but I think at that moment it felt so genuine and it was so needed. Like I need it. Someone
1: to hold me. Wow, that that really tugs at your heartstrings. Hey, yeah, she's got a son who's struggling, and she's feeling alone. And and you know, this narcissist hugs her, and she's like, "I I just I just needed that." And uh, you know, you can tell from the earlier part in her story when she's talking about the the earlier dates that she had gone on, and she said, "You know, he just didn't give me any attention. He didn't give me an a, affection." those are her motivations. And I mean, God forbid you fill out a love language survey and put it on Facebook, like that you've automatically proclaimed what you know that you value gifts or you value time spent together. And that will be used against you um, by, by somebody with malicious intent.
0: And even in a recent episode, you know, Soleil says, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep this family together. And that is leverage. When someone knows what they can leverage against you, you know, emotional blackmail. Yes. You know, that's what it really is. um, Then, uh, you know, you've you've got a big problem on your hands. When someone knows those little things of how they can leverage those things against you and what will keep you strung along for a longer period of time, which you don't want to lose. And that can also be uh, motivation would be, I don't want to be broke. If uh, you know this person saying to me, if I'm trying to leave this relationship right now that I don't have a job, they have a job and I'm going to make your life miserable and you're not going to get a dime from me. Well, that's a big motivation right there of not being poor. Um, so things along uh, along those lines, and uh, another thing in our guide to setting up a reinforcement system is create conditions of deprivation, so take us along this one
1: Well, I asked you to put a pin in the part of the story where Pavlov kept his dogs hungry, and that's this that 's the implication here for for a relationship where um you know if we're we're kept in an, in a state of wanting um uh, future faking is alive and well as a strategy here.
0: And let's go take a listen to a clip with Quinn to uh, reinforce this point.
4: So he would do this sort of commitment phobic dance where I would rarely see him sometimes, sometimes two weeks would go by and I wouldn't see him at all. Uh, and it, it said, it, when I approached him about it and said, hey, like, what's going on? Are we okay? Because did I say something to offend? You know, I'm even afraid to ask. But, you know, what's going on? And he would just say, oh, I just, you know, backpedaling a little bit just to don't move too fast, you know, which never seemed to be a problem before for him. And so suddenly I was barely seeing him. I was seeing him um, here and there. And the pain that I got as I approached him about it, and each time... He made me feel worse and worse. was was terrible. Like the stabbing pain of rejection. Like this person that was so into me suddenly doesn't seem very into me. So I would sort of start to corner him and say, you know, I, I need to know one way or the other. Are we going forward or are we not? Because basically, I wanted to. I had a life that I really had to get on with, and it couldn't be wasting time um, hanging out. You know, waiting for him to call. So. You know, he would he would sort of hold all my weekends. It was almost like he purposefully did it instead of just saying, "You know what? I have I'm going to really want the day to myself Saturday." Uh, he would never come out and say that. He would always just kind of leave me hanging.
1: It's it's so interesting to me how Quinn describes the the pain that there was the stabbing pain of rejection. It repeats that over and over again. Like there's there's something physiological pain that happens when, you know, we've grown accustomed to a certain kind of attention or affection or time together, and all of a sudden that's withheld. And uh, she just describes, you know, the physical effect of of that. At some point, Brandon, you said to her, um, between the two of you, between you and Quinn, you were noticing the narcissist had a change in tactic, that the, the tactic had changed. And That produced in her this alarming feeling of, you know, loneliness and and rejection, she says.
0: Up next, we have choose when to boil your frog in your guide to setting up a reinforcement system.
1: Right. So let's, let's quickly review the guide to setting up a reinforcement system is no know, knowing what your victim wants. That's, that's going to be the motivation that you can leverage, create conditions of deprivation, like keep them hungry and keep them coming and then decide whether and how, and, and, and how often you want to turn up the, the temperature on the frog that you now have in the kettle, uh, decide which behaviors are going to reinforce and, and how often. So here, uh, Again, remember that the behaviors that are likely to come under attack are our social behaviors, our communication behaviors, and our cognitive behaviors, our independent thinking. And, and so be, be mindful that that's what's going to come under attack. And here's where where we're introduced to the systems of reinforcement that are likely to be used. So if we could listen to the clip of, of Quinn um and and here, Brendan, you do a little bit of talking with her about. Uh, she's noticing. Well, let's let's have her tell it in her own words, and then we'll talk about it later.
4: So um, he was also really chivalrous. I don't think I've ever known a man in my life as chivalrous as he was at that time. You know, which is where every little twitch I made was like, "Are you okay? Are you about to sneeze? Do you need a tissue?" You know, can I get you another fork? Do you want me to clean your fork? Let me get you a spoon. Maybe a spoon is better. And there's just constant um, reading my face, reading my emotions. um, And he had this whole thing about I can really see into people. I really am connected to people. And I really know people like no one else knows people because I've made it a thing in my life to just really get inside people and know people. And this was presented to me in this comforting way. Like, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to forget what your feelings are. I'm really going to, you know, help you open up. And he did uh, succeed in opening me up and me telling him, you know, just about everything I had to say, which is really more than I had ever done. Uh, my my friendships with people were always me listening to their problems. Um, You know, I always had this feeling that I just kind of had to take care of myself. So here, finally, someone puts the key and it unlocks me. And I just pour myself out like an open book. And this all took place in about, I would say, two months of this intense, 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 close thing. And then there was the rage.
0: And So so, so before we even get to the rage you know with everything that's happened here in the first two months you have i guess it's an intense concentration on everything you're doing i not mean, that, that's a bad wording attentiveness to yeah. your needs to a point where he's overdoing what is needed, and that is overwhelming. It shows a chivalry chivalry, or a chivalry, chivalrousness, is that a word, (laughs) that you are not used to. And the, even though it's seen as chivalry, it is a form of I guess, control of of a sort in the sense of you're being conditioned right here with all of these attentive things that your needs here are always going to be attended to. And that is a big hook for you. And, you know, you have common interests, you're being mirrored at this point, so... Are these common interests, real common interests or as a fluke? Or is this something that he's really um, mirroring, in your opinion?
4: Right. No, I think that he was mirroring most of it. And and maybe some of it was he was genuinely sort of just agreeing with me. But I think that it was really mirroring more than it was genuine.
1: So we're literally at the the 12-minute mark in her story. And... She's, she's described the idealization phase, the love bombing. She's described him as a Disney prince. She's, she describes over and over again how chivalrous he is. And what, what you notice in her story is, first of all, that her narcissist is, is now beginning to change tactics. And, and how you say it is that he's overdoing it and that we're getting too much of a good thing. And that really has implications here for this system of reinforcement. So I I love the fact that we talk about intermittent reinforcement in um, narcissistic publications. I I think it's really important. Intermittent reinforcement um, describes what's called the slot machine effect. And scientifically, we know that there is no system of reinforcement more powerful in the creation of addiction than the intermittent kind. So the way intermittent reinforcement works is, is if you think of the slot machine, we pull the lever and then sometimes we win and sometimes we don't. It's it's pretty rare in my experience to have inter, intermittent reinforcement isn't the, often the first tactic that a narcissist uses. The first system of reinforcement that narcissists are likely to use is, is unlimited positive reinforcement. So if intermittent is the slot machine, unlimited is like the buffet table. It's just unconditional access to all the things that you love and value and appreciate. And um, it's tailor-made to whatever it is you happen to to love, to to your motivation. It, It comes often. It is often abundant, like over the top. It's often unexpected. And the other thing I notice about this system of reinforcement is it's often public. So people, other people see how well you're being treated and you know, the, this lavish affection that you're receiving. And the purpose of unlimited positive reinforcement is to create addiction. That's its purpose. It's to create a baseline of what you can expect so that months down the road, when you start craving That person that you love, that you fell in love with the first time, that's this person.
0: And I see everything through the addiction lens uh, for the most part. And, you know, as I say a lot of times during the show, you were given a heroin dose uh, right off the bat there. Of everything that you wanted, everything that you needed for you to feel it it's in your body, it's in your system it's very overwhelming and once that addiction has taken hold, then at that point they can start to do the intermittent reinforcement because they can then take it all away and when you're an addict, everyone, you know you know the first time first the first time you use something is always the best time. And then after that, it's never as good. As they say in the uh, opium world or the opioid world, it's like chasing the dragon from whatever era of the world at that time that was. And, you know, uh, know, all this kind of happens during the idealization phase, during the love bombing uh, phase. And then eventually you start to get what I consider to be like the testing of The addiction where then something can be taken away or something bad can happen. And then when you give that addiction crumb back to them, they get that sensation. They get the hit. It overwhelms them. It goes into their veins. They get the initial feeling that they got. Just like if it was a Pavlovian dog reaction, they salivate, their heart goes, their butterflies are back and all of a sudden things are good again. And once you're in that state... Once you've been given that addiction state, in my opinion, you're toast. And that's why it's so difficult, and people have such a difficult time leaving at the end of everything, or even when they're gone, because we're all addicts. You know, when an addict is an addict, some people eventually can stop going to meetings and they got it under control. But for a lot of people, That addiction is still there, and they have to go to meetings every day, and they have to do the work every day because it's in them. That feeling is there. That's how powerful it was. It's a drug, and some people who become an addict, they might not have actually had problems. They just got hooked, but when you go to an AA meeting and you go to a GA meeting for gamblers or whatever, they're filling a void, you know, in themselves in a lot of way. And and these addictions are the thing that's filling the void. And for people in these situations, a lot of us might be codependent people coming into this. And there's a void that needs to be put in there. And these people are the void, except they're a drug. And they're an addiction in itself. We don't know it's bad for us, but we're used to it. Somehow we're, you know, we're attracted to it. And, you know, drugs aren't good for us, but for some reason we still take them. We know it and that's what we have to try and find ourselves out of eventually. Mm -hmm. And I railroaded this whole entire uh, conversation here. So let's go to a a survival uh, survivor tip here.
1: Before we do that, I want to respond to what you just said. Um, When I was telling my episode initially, when I was telling my story initially, um, I I got to a point in the story where my behavior no longer made sense. Like I was doing something that didn't make sense anymore. And I, and I offered an explanation. I was like, well, I guess it was because I loved Andy, or I guess it was because I wanted to belong to the gay community. And you, you stopped and you, and then you, you said, she gave you your heroin and then she took it away. And I, I had never heard that metaphor before. It's completely foreign to me. And I didn't even know what to think of what you said. You know, at that point, Andy had bought me a camper van, which was so important to me. She had done a number of other love bomby kinds of things. And then she took it all away. And I found myself in this bizarre state of craving, like an insatiable need to clamor my way back into her arms. And you use that heroin analogy, and I, you know, I responded to it as we were recording, but Boy, I, I had to think about that after the fact.
0: Well, she's just not your drug. She's also your drug dealer. And, you know, when it comes to the survival tip of these things, a lot of people, when you're an addict, you think that the thing that can fix you is the thing that is hurting you. And you think that thing might be perfect. And that's what you need. And, and the reality of it is that that thing isn't perfect. That person isn't what you, you've been tricked into thinking that that is the thing you need. And, you know, really, you know, the narcissist is only postponing, you know, the correction of these behaviors. So, you know, when they're come back into the scene and they're doing all these things for you, whether it be gifts or services or flattery, you know, At that point, boundaries need to be put up. And it's the same thing with kind of other addictions. Some of the things people might do, I can't go to a bar. My friends are going to a bar, I can't go. I have to put a boundary so I don't even get to where, you know, that is. Like for, let's say I had a cocaine problem. Well, if I went to a bar and had a drink and my drink is now in me, lowers my inhibitions, that phone call to my drug dealer might be that much easier than it was before. So you have to set boundaries in a lot of different ways of who you hang out with, um, you know, who you share things with, your vulnerabilities, because you're going to have triggers. And so you need to set boundaries uh, for not just this person, but for uh, other things, where you go, where you hang out, you know, you have to, like what can trigger me to make that phone call what can trigger me to uh, get back into a situation with this person or at least put me into ruminating thoughts so you have to set boundaries with you know uh, other people and with yourself um in this and you know knocking these people off of their pedestal is very difficult but once you do that uh you know it will be so much easier. I always like to say to, to someone, we wake up, we eat, we shit, we sleep, we wake up. Everyone does it. We're all the same. We're gross. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're all gross and I don't think, you forget it.
1: <laughs> I think you mentioned codependency as, uh, you know, as something that can get us extra hooked into uh, this this addiction. I don't know if this is a tangent or not, but I think it's important. It frustrates me when when people misunderstand the meaning of the word codependency. I, I think a lot of people conflate being dependent and being codependent, and they're not the same. I am the farthest thing from a dependent person in the world.
0: So so we can go off on a million different things here, but it's a lot of things like uh, like. Codependency is its own massive thing, and I just want to say to reiterate what you're saying before we move on. When it comes to codependency, because I've been doing my own codependency work, it manifests in so many different ways that are unrecognizable and show up in so many – like it's hard to explain – you know what can show up as being neediness in one way can show up in uh, need having someone to need me in another way. So, you can play both sides of the coin there, um, you know guilt, shame it can It can manifest in multiple ways where you recognize that i 'm codependent in one way, but you might be totally blind to a way that you're codependent in another way. You might be codependent to your family in one way, you might be codependent to a relationship in a completely different way, and i 'm being very vague because we can go down this road. And then never find ourselves out of it. Uh, So I'm just going to say that codependencies are really tricky because um, it's got like 20 different heads. Yeah, truly. So after that survivor tip, let's go to the shift to intermittent reinforcement. Yeah. Or have I even already gone there?
1: Well, in a way, we have. Uh, You you can't make something intermittent. Uh, intermittent describes something that's now irregular, so it's irregular because we've established a pattern of what's regular so you have your your unlimited full buffet help yourself and now you might also of a sudden experience a, a a little shift you know the availability of a partner um now suddenly has other things to do. um I forget which story it was where <laughs> the guy just liked. He's like, no, I don't think I can. I have to sort my Tupperware. She said, do you remember that story?
0: Um, I don't remember it.
1: Yeah, it was just, it wasn't that long ago. But um, so for me, again, my relationship was established through texting. And I came to expect that, you know, three three smiling faces represented the maximum amount of love in one speech bubble. And if I got less than that, that's that's a change. And I, I noticed it. And it sounds so juvenile. I'm a 50-year-old woman who's noticing that there's one less kiss uh, in in, a, in an emoji, and yet it absolutely had significance. And, you know, I, I would worry. I'd be like, well, what's wrong? And I, I think there's a survivor who, who actually says that. She's like, you know, is everything okay? I've just noticed a change. And And so, of course, I reach out to Andy to ask that question like, she's like, well, no, everything's fine. Like, okay, well, you know, there's usually, and I love you. Um, you know, we haven't seen each other in a while. Um, you haven't touched me recently, like things like that, that signify change where we say like, is everything okay? And, and the purpose of the shift to intermittent reinforcement is actually the test to see if we're addicted, right? It's, it's, it's the test to say, if I change this pattern of attention and affection, is, is this person addicted to me? And, you know, your, your word for that is, is being hooked. Um, and it, it produces that feeling of being off kilter. And at least for me anyways, I immediately went inside and I was like, you know, have I gained weight? Did I do something wrong? Have I offended her somehow? And and so I, I would reach out and I'd be like, hey, you know, is everything okay? And I mean, God forbid you do that. And, and a narcissist says, oh, you're so needy right? And then you feel self-conscious about the fact that you're needy. Um, and then as it turns out, she would say, um, yeah, sorry, I was just busy. Sarah had a gallstone attack and, you know, I had her at the hospital and she was crying and I was comforting her. And it's like, that's exactly why I got one heart emoji because you were busy with wife number one. And, and now I'm, you know, second class and I'm getting one. So as HG Tudor says, um, I, I was in a, a three way love triangle. I, I had a partner who had a duplicate life and when she was pouring out her love and affection for one woman, um, I, I, I was I wasn't getting the the full deal.
0: And when you should expect it is exactly when you think you've had enough. Boom. Like clockwork, they know. Until actually, for some people, it gets to a point where you've totally been destroyed and there is no coming back for you and they know that they can just do terrible thing after terrible thing. Um, but for the most part, you know, as soon as they think that you are had enough or they're gro- you're growing suspicious of something, that's when the intermittent reinforcement can come into play. So, you know, the way it kind of works is reinforcement is to encourage more of your desired behavior. Uh, punishment is to deter unwanted behavior. And then the positive reinforcement is the contingent uh, addition of a response. And then the negative reinforcement is the contingent withholding of a response. Would would you say that's correct?
1: I would absolutely say that's correct. But let, let's define that even further just so it's it's really clear. Positive and negative. When we're talking about these these systems, this behavior shaping, positive does not mean that it's good. Positive means that something is added. So positive reinforcement means that you're you get roses, or you get a kiss, or you get time together. You're receiving something. That's positive reinforcement. Negative reinforcement. Um, it sounds like an oxymoron, but negative means Something is removed. So here's how negative reinforcement works. Um, negative reinforcement is, the I'm going to say, contingent removal. Contingent means it's connected. The removal of something that you're motivated to stop. It's aversive. I, it's unpleasant. I want it to stop. And the the answer is, yes, I will remove that when you do this. So a great example of that is your seatbelt dinger. It's aversive. It's mine actually gets louder and faster the more I ignore it. So I, I'm, I can't ignore it. The desired behavior is that I put my seatbelt on. And once I do that, the aversive thing stops. The same is also true when you're, you've got a screaming kid and you're walking through a store and you scoop them up and put them in the cart and they're like, let me down. So you know what their motivation is. They want freedom. They want to walk. And then you, you set up a contingent system and you say, listen, I will let you down if you settle down and you be quiet and you walk closer to me. So that's, the, that's negative reinforcement. I'm negatively reinforcing you for doing what I want you to do. Positive punishment is added to our lives. Uh, a narcissist will add gaslighting. They will add threats. They add confusion Negative punishment, then, is the removal of something. That's like being grounded, right? Like something is taken away for the sake of deterring unwanted behavior. And, and that's where we see things like stonewalling and gaslighting, where, where we are punished in a way for what we have just done by removing something that we want. We want communication or we want contact, and now that's being withheld.
0: And, uh, you know, we, uh, a lot of us know that there's a show called the Big Bang Theory. (laughs) And in the Big Bang Theory, we're actually using an example that's not from the show. We're using, could you believe that we're going to be using an example from the Big Bang Theory on this show? But yes, we are. There's an episode where Sheldon uses positive reinforcement on Penny. And later Sheldon says to his roommate, if you let me use a squirt bottle, I'll have her trained by evening.
1: What what Sheldon is speaking to is, you know, that he's using positive reinforcement on Penny and it's, I mean, it, it looks harmless and it's playful. He's giving her chocolates for doing the things that he wants. But what he says to his roommate is, if you let me punish her, I will have this polished up by tonight. And what he's speaking to is is the powerful combination of reinforcement and punishment at the same time. And narcissists are masterful at this, where where we are reinforced for the behavior they want to see and, and punished for any infractions beyond that. So I I like to think of these systematic ways of shaping our behavior like sandpaper. Um, You know, when you first drywall and you've got big chunks of drywall, you use like 80 grit sandpaper to knock off the big parts and, and sort of get the wall into shape. And then, and then you polish it up with your, your last grit of sandpaper, you know, 180 or 200 grit sandpaper to sort of polish it off. And and the punishment at, as the narcissistic cycle gets worse and worse is is just sort of a change in sandpaper to sort of finish off the behaviors that aren't yet under control. And and I'll describe in a second how all of these parts start working together. These things happen not necessarily sequentially but but simultaneously. So when when we when you can expect a narcissist to shift from positive reinforcement into the, the squirt bottle and start adding punishment is when 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 the narcissist knows that we are thoroughly hooked, right? So, you know, we're, we're addicted. We're going to keep coming back for more, even if it's bad for us, just like you said, um, or um, to expect it once we have so much invested that it would take too much for us to back out now. And that can mean anything from the investment of children, the, the financial investment, the investment of time, the investment of you know I've already been divorced three times and if I get divorced again my parents will disown me, um, you know I I, I want to make his life better or her life better and and so I've invested so much um, I don't I don't want to stop now I just I think I can make him happy right um, and I think also when to expect punishment is when our target behaviors our social behaviors our communication behaviors and our our cognitive behaviors threaten the narcissist's cover right because the stakes are high now and if if that you know who we're connected to and what we're saying publicly starts to threaten the narcissist and the stuff they do behind closed doors you can expect a heavier hand like we're gonna, you know the hammer's going to come down i think there's a really interesting variation of punishment where um where, where you would ordinarily expect punishment, um, you know, you've, you've done something that you know has bothered the narcissist and you would expect to be punished when you got home or, you know, when the time was right. And all of a sudden it doesn't happen. This, this happened to me a lot where, um, you know, I would think, oh, I'm going to get shit for this later. And it produces all of those anxious hormones and, you know, I'm prickly and I'm terrified and I know that it's coming. And then all of a sudden it doesn't happen. And the the reduction of those neurochemicals, the, that anxiousness, it just washes away. And what takes its place is affection and even gratitude. Like, thank you for not yelling at me. Thank you for not hitting me. And, and that variation of punishment, in my opinion, has a powerful role in the trauma bond because um, there's one author who says it's like thanking your captor for a sip of water. Like they're the one who's holding you hostage and you're thanking them for their kindness.
0: So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh negative reinforcement before we end off the show.
1: I'm really glad you said that because I, I think this is a sort of an under-recognized method that narcissists use. N- Remember negative reinforcement is the contingent removal of something that's yucky that's unpleasant for the sake of doing a desired behavior and and so it's sort of the it's up to you strategy like I wouldn't have hit you if you hadn't worn that dress um is is negative reinforcement getting the, getting the message that we have the power to make something better for ourselves if we just did something different and um One of the things Andy used to do is is if I dared to bring up my feelings with her, um, Andy Andy had no time for my feelings. She had no empathy, and I I don't think she liked to deal with the, the effect that that had on her, so she would squash my feelings. And at the end of a long argument about me bringing something up about how I felt, she would say, you know, the next time, If you could just say it this way, or if you could just approach me this way, the conversation will go so much better. And so, man, I, you know, I basically write that down and follow that script to the letter the next time. And of course it, it never worked. Like she gave me a fake script that she's never going to be happy with my feelings, but you know, I, I'd be less of an asshole. If only you did this, this, and this, that's how, how negative reinforcement really works let's, let's have a look at how this all works in tandem. Um, you know, we've, we've listed these strategies, one, two, three, four, but they don't very often happen in sequential order. Once, once it's all been established, this all starts working at, at the same time. And this is how my work works as a behavior interventionist. Um, I've, I've got all of these tools in my tool belt that are happening at the same time. The, the first step in, 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 uh, behavior intervention is to set up the environment where you can do your job. And the ideal environment for a narcissist is a partner who is isolated, who is silent, and who is mentally confused, like just absolutely confused through gaslighting. That's the, those are ideal conditions. Just like Mark Lapine in the the Montreal Massacre, he created those conditions where violence could happen and and that's the environmental uh, setting where where narcissistic abuse
0: occurs. And for this example, we're going to be using an approach of canceling Christmas, <laughs> and uh, you know the so everything here will have to be about uh, canceling Christmas and all the different aspects that that play into it.
1: Right. Thank you for saying that. Yes, this is a comprehensive approach to canceling Christmas, uh, which we know lots of narcissists like like to do. So I am geographically isolated. Uh, and Andy has asked me to move two provinces away from my family, which I have done. I am now completely apart from them. Um, she has put all kinds of restrictions around the things that I'm able to say to other people. I I constantly misspeak, particularly as I represent the gay community. I, I always do it wrong. And and my brain is fried. Like my executive functions are shot. So the environmental condition is right for canceling Christmas. This was so interesting to me. Let's say that it's October. Um, and I've just had a conversation with my brother on the phone. And First of all, there's probably no one on the planet that I love and respect more than my brother. No one will ever come between me and him, which is a real challenge for Andy. And, but he's my brother and he irritates me sometimes. And so I had had a conversation with him and something was bugging me. I sat down on the couch after my phone call and I said, man, that irritated me. Andy dried her hands and she came to the couch and she sat with me i was i was complaining about my brother and she took my foot put it in her lap and she was rubbing my foot as i complained about my brother she was reinforcing me for complaining about my family and then here and there she sort of added her own complaints which is the you know the seed planting that was like hmm, that that's kind of a problem yeah and it, I mean, it looked like empathy, but she was encouraging me to criticize my family.
0: So he's, she's positively reinforcing a situation here, giving you a good feeling mm-hmm. about bad things. In yes.
1: Life. Nicely said.
0: And, uh, you know, the next category would be conditioning. And conditioning can come in different forms, it can come in, you know, negative memes about, Christmas. For people that don't know what memes are, I'm not going to explain it to you. That's down another rabbit hole. Uh, it could be about minimalism. It can be about consumerism. You know, uh, you know, uh, you have written down here, Hanukkah. What's that about?
1: Well, there's a reason for that. Um, this has to do with triangulation. Um, Sarah, Sarah is Jewish. And so the, the Andy, Sarah duo, is all about Jewish traditions. And the Andy Erica duo is all about Christmas. And and so these memes in a very subtle way, um, Andy knows that I'm a minimalist and that I oppose consumerism and the commercialism of Christmas, I oppose that. And so these memes are meant to sort of encourage me in that direction. And eventually I I have shame about the fact that I wanna go celebrate Christmas with my family. Like, hmm, I thought you were a minimalist. Well, I can still see my family. So it's just the subtle covert way of conditioning me into thinking that Christmas with my family is going to be a bad thing. Meanwhile, she's also holding on to the fact that I complained about my brother last month. Right? This is all happening at the same time.
0: And then we get the two different kinds of punishment coming up. And the first punishment is a negative punishment, which is stonewalling. You know, stonewalling for you at this time happened with your Christmas plans. You don't know what's going on. Things are kind of in limbo, uh, would be fair to say. And then another thing would be snubbing the gifts that you're making for your family. So in a way, undermining kind of what you're doing here. You know, you're they're taking a positive thing here and now spinning it uh, to you that what you're doing um, you know, they're punishing you and who you are and your family in a way here. Um and taking things away. They're just taking things here. So that would be, mm-hmm. I guess, the negative punishment.
1: Well, well, even even taking away my sense of pride. So, you know, I don't participate much in, in consumerism. I, I take pride in the fact that I I give homemade gifts and you know, I feel good about that. I'm happy about that. But when I when I say, "Hey, look what I made for my mom," and she's like, mm, whatever, like it's it, that's negative punishment she's she's withholding uh you know, oh, that's really beautiful. And so I just start to feel kind of stupid and silly about wanting to have Christmas with my family, and then eventually there's what becomes threatening, like the threat of punishment um. She, she sort of runs interference on the plans that I'm about to make with my family to go back to Manitoba to be with them. And she's like, hey, guess what? I booked the resort in upstate New York. And, you know, we're going to go for Christmas. And and now, now I'm having to choose between what looks like generosity with my obligation to my family. And, and then the, you know, the buy one, get one free benefit of, of booking that resort is if I don't go, she will go with Sarah. And so that then becomes the the negative reinforcement, which is, hey, you know, if, if you don't go to Manitoba to be with your family, then I won't go with Sarah. You can come with me. Um, and then this is just narcissism classic is, is where I ended up going to Christmas with, with my family in Manitoba. And then, you know, my phone is just blowing up with texts because she's creating chaos. I can't even enjoy myself because there's a gong show going on back home that I I have to tend to. So all that to say that, that those aren't sequential events. Those are almost simultaneous events, all of which are meant to, to impact um, participating with Christmas. I think it's time for one more survival tip. So whether It's mild or severe. I think we need to pay attention to how we're being corrected and to notice whether those target behavior, those behaviors that are targeted, if they have to do with our connection, our communication, and our mental functioning. So to ask yourself, if I allow myself to be influenced by this method, will I end up more isolated? If I allow myself to be influenced by this conditioning method, will I end up voiceless and if, 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 if I don't pay attention to the methods that are used against me, and am I going to be just like losing my mental function? And if the answer is yes, then that means the narcissist is attacking those things. Um, they have effectively created the conditions in which some of the worst abuse can occur. And so when I think about, you know, turning this on its head and saying, okay, You know, Doctors of the Dark Side was about, these are the torture methods that are likely to be used. We want you to be able to withstand it and survive it and come out the other side. So we really identified a lot of those things. And Valentina, you know, I shouldn't have favorites, but boy, oh boy, I love that episode. She is just a remarkable woman. You'll recall that um, she's a financial genius and she single-handedly made her narcissist a multimillionaire. Uh, just an empire of the newspaper business. She established offices in four major cities around the United States, um, and and then and then such resilience. Like she earned and lost and made money behind the scenes in order to escape with her son, not once but three times. And the, the, my favorite clip. I I just I think we should re- let her her say it.
5: Yeah. So, uh, I found out about narcissism eight years in, um, I was in the bathroom on the floor in the dark, bawling my eyes out, just super dramatically, all dramatic, like and sniffling and crying and yelling and bawling, just tears and snot just coming off of my face. Just having a complete breakdown as I did weekly, multiple times a week. And of course my ex is doing nothing. He's just like watching TV in the other room. And I, uh, I'm on the floor and I have my phone with me and I Google, why is my boyfriend bullying me? And that Google search is what changed the trajectory of my entire life. So, found out about the word narcissism and just went down an entire rabbit hole of this is not even my fault. This is not even me. This is not even any of this is my, none of this is my fault. This is all him. He is the one that has this dysfunction mentally and um, had a complete awakening of who I was, who he was, my code, you know, our codependency, um, my empathy, you know, empathy, and instead of me falling into a "woe is me" type of "I'm with a narcissist," I can't believe I'm with a narcissist, and I I'm an idiot for being a narcissist. What I actually did is I turned it into. How can I get what I want by manipulating him in the opposite way? And I became really, really good at feeding his ego, at playing his game in the opposite direction in order to move ahead in order for me to move ahead. And that's, you know, that's when the entire tables turned. He didn't know it was turning, but it was turning. And I go ahead.
0: So if you, if he was to rage, how did you figure out how to defuse that situation?
5: (laughs) Um, So there was two two ways. Uh, The first way that I started to do was, I call it the M&M tactic. So I don't know if you remember the movie Eight Mile.
0: Of course. Where he like
5: totally, uh, they start doing the battle where with him and the the African-American guy. And he, you know, they're like ripping on each other. And then M&M just starts ripping on himself. So the other guy had nothing to say. So what I started doing is when he would go into these rages of, you know, my ex very rarely came out and was just like, you're an idiot. You're so dumb. What he would do is, let's say I put I, I put a bowl of cherries on the counter and forgot to put it in the refrigerator. And he'd be like, only an idiot would leave cherries on the counter, only a dumbass. My three-year-old sister knows better than to leave cherries on the counter. So he wouldn't ever say, you're an idiot. He would just say, whoever did what I did was an idiot. So then when I would say, stop calling me an idiot, he'd be like, I didn't call you an idiot. Are you serious right now? Why are you telling me that? So then I'm, I'm like, incredibly dumb because not only did I leave the cherries so he's insinuating, but I'm an idiot. But then I'm like a liar and an idiot because like, he didn't actually say that he didn't actually call me an idiot. Do you know what I mean? It was like so many layers of manipulation it was insane. So, what was I, where was I going with this? I don't even remember. Uh,
0: you were trying to tell the story of how you would defuse a situation of rage. Oh
5: yeah. So what I started doing is, as soon as it would start, um, I would just backdoor him because I already knew what he was going to say. He said all this. He said all the same stuff every single time for years. So I would then say, you know, he'd start out by saying, "Who left the cherries on the freaking counter?" And I'd be like, I don't know, but he must be an idiot <laughs> stuff like that, in order to to like so then he had nothing to say,
1: you know. So she I mean she, she had all the information, just like we're doing here, the all this information about narcissism. And as she said, you know, instead of instead of succumbing to it, instead of giving into it, she said, I turned all of his methods and used them against him. <laughs> and I just um and I love your laughter at the end because it's just, it's such a triumphant moment. I'm not sure I would recommend that necessarily, but um, she describes it so beautifully. So instead, I, I just like to, to sort of name some survival strategies that worked for me when, when I was faced with this kind of conditioning. I, for me, it was really important to set boundaries around my tolerance for mistreatment and, and to be brave enough to say, you don't get to talk to me like that. Uh, for me, it was important to decline even what feels like positive reinforcement. Um, you know, I, I that can be too much, and it and it's just as manipulative as the other kind. Um, you know, that lavish love bombing kind of thing. It's it's all rooted in the same person with the same agenda. It's just a different expression. Um, it was really important for me to maintain at least one connection to a trusted person, and then to commit to talking out loud to that person. Um, And and it was also another important strategy for me to, um, to journal. And when I couldn't journal, I, uh, my phone is full of photos that, I mean, they have an automatic date, they have an automatic timestamp. And, and, and I might just take a picture of, I've, I've even taken pictures of my legs under a table, like, I happened to be at an important meeting and I wanted to remember where I was and what I was doing um, just as a way of journaling the sequence of events so that I can stay clear headed. It's like a prosthetic device for cognitive functioning. It's like an external brain. Um, and that really allowed me to maintain that mental clarity rather than falling prey to the the confusion of, of gaslighting. Um, just, one more story. Uh, I think it was in the in the, one of the Star Trek movies where a, a captain was um, held hostage. He was taken hostage and he was subjected to methods of torture. And at the start of of his captivity, he was presented with a, a little thing that had five lights on it. And his, his captor would say, how many lights are there? He would say, there's five. And then he would be subjected to tremendous Torture. Am I telling this story correctly? You're smiling already.
0: Uh, I just enjoyed you be imitating a, some Star Trek cat captain going, There's five. <laughs> okay, good. I'm
1: glad I'm doing it right. Um and so over the, the course of time his captor says, like, just just say there's four and you know, I'll give you a meal. Just say there's four and I'll turn I'll set you free. He's like, No, there's five. <laughs> when he gets, he gets back to his, his ship. Um, and he's being checked over to, she, she says to him, how did you know that there were five? And he said, I didn't. I, he said, I saw four, but I knew from the world prior to the abuse that there were five and there will always be five. And so I just kept saying there's five. I just kept telling myself that. And when it came to my own, Mental confusion, like the the sum total of all of this behavior modification, um, I just to anchor myself in 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 things that were real, including my friendships and time with my dogs and time in nature, um, was just my way to stay anchored with reality. So I hope those those survival strategies have been have been helpful at the end of all of this. And if that fails, then just go back to Valentina's episode and do what she did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Erica, once again, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show. Today we talked about complicated things. Hopefully we made it all simple for everyone listening. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you again uh, today and all the knowledge that you're sharing with everyone and all this work that you're doing to help everyone uh, out that you do voluntarily. So a, a big thank you. Uh, for for being part of our lives the show and uh, we hope to see you again soon
1: I hope to see you again soon too as well it's great to visit with you
0: and thank you once again Erica for being a guest on our show this week and if you want to be a guest on our survivor story episodes please do go to narcissistapocalypse.com Top of the page, there's a button there that says guest form. You click on that button, all the instructions you need are there. You can either fill out our guest form or send us an email from there at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com. We are always looking for more stories, and speaking of stories, this week. Uh, you know, this week's Survivor Story episode coming up is an interesting one. We rarely do episodes with people that are still in their relationship and trying to get out. And this week we did one. It's fantastic. So look forward to that this coming. Monday, And if you need support, you can also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. In the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. If you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. We have a community of people on there who are participating in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings which meet on Wednesday nights, Saturday nights, and now Thursday afternoons. So for you people in Europe, that Thursday afternoon can be uh, at around, I think, 7 p.m., 8 p.m. your time. Uh, So that is good for you people in Europe who want to be part of our group. We also have meditation ceremonies. We have closure ceremonies, amongst other things on there, like ad-free episodes and we have bonus episodes as well. If you just want to support the show, go there and join our group. So to join our group, just go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press support group, and we will see you there. And if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And you can also connect with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And once again, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Erica, for being our guest this week. And from Erica and myself, we hope you have a good night.